0: A very warm welcome to the Word Life Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going back to 2015 and the track by Nick Tucker with the wonderful title, 12 Things God Can't Do and Why They Should Help You Sleep at Night. These talks show us the character of our God and help us see what that looks like for us in our lives. I hope you find they expand your mind and warm your heart. Here's Nick. Okay, so this morning we're talking about how God cannot suffer or change or die. Uh, Three things that God cannot do, Uh, all of which have in some ways been controversial in the last century in terms of Christian theology. Now, I don't intend to get into the... um, academic controversies, particularly that's not the purpose of what we're doing together, Uh, I'll touch on some things. If you're interested in reading a a sort of brief introduction to some of these questions, then I think the best thing I can recommend to you is a book by Gerald Bray entitled The Personal God. I'm pretty sure it's IVP. No, it's not. It's Paternoster. Um, And it's very short, but typically of Gerald, it's brilliantly written. Okay, so that's The Personal God. Uh, And it was written in response to a group of evangelical scholars who had questioned some of the things that we're talking about today. If you want to look at something a bit bigger and looking at questions of God's foreknowledge and God's sovereignty, uh, then um, there's a book by Bruce Ware called God's Lesser Glory, provocative title, um, and I'd recommend that to you. Okay, that's just by way of um, sort of introduction. But uh, as we think about how God can't change or suffer, uh, I wonder what your instant reaction is to that the idea that God cannot change. Do you think, yes, absolutely, that's great, that's a good thing? Or do you think somehow that maybe change is a, good, is, is a good thing itself? That change is something to be looked for, that change is necessary if there is to be hope, if there is to be progress, if there is uh, to be relationship. It is one of the things that politicians uh, offer us, isn't it? Change. That's the thing that will make the world a better place if it changes. So what I'd like you to do, uh, if you would, um, and I know that some of you have been dreading the moment that this would come this morning. It's coming every morning, isn't it, where you sort of turn to the person next to you and, uh, and talk about things. And if you don't know the person next to you, that's awkward, particularly if you're British. Uh, I say that, I mean English, don't I? You know, The Celts, the Celts can talk to people. They're sociable, sociable beings. But, but us English people, we find it difficult. I come from London. Well, I live in London. You know, if you talk to someone on the tube, that's pretty much equivalent to murder. So, um, you know, I do, I've been rebuked by friends saying, why do you put us through this torture? Look, there is a reason, and um, I'm just not telling you what it is. So, uh, turn to the person next to you, and I've put two questions on the, on, on the sheet for you to think about, underneath God's immutability. And, um, sorry, again, Latin uh, word, meaning that God doesn't change. So, mutable... Is that sort of, is is the Latin root of of, of words that mean change, so mutation, okay? So immutable means he can't change. Um, That uh, I at the beginning, it just means not, cannot, will not. Okay, so immutability, God doesn't change. Uh, What is change? Have a think about that. What is change? How would you define change? And then having done that, that might help you then to think about the second question, which is, Given what we've seen over the last two mornings about what God is like, about who he is, why might you think it's unlikely that he would change? Why might God not change? Okay, so first question then, uh, what is change? The second one, why might you think God wouldn't change? Just from what we've seen already. Okay, go to it. Um, you know Get over yourselves, talk to each other. Enjoy being people together. Okay, so I don't know what you came up with in, in terms of your definition of change. I'm not going to ask you for feedback on that, but if we could get the roving mics ready uh, for um, the next question, that'd be fantastic. So, uh, what is change? I went to a dictionary. I asked the dictionary. The dictionary said, uh, "To make the form, nature, content, future course, etc., of something different from what it is, or from what it would be if left alone." Okay to make the form, nature, content, future, course, et cetera, of something different from what it is or from what it would be if it was left alone. So the, um, uh, the interesting thing I discovered in that particular exercise is if you look in different dictionaries, they have slightly different definitions, and then you think, oh, yes, uh, they have to because of copyright law. Um, uh, and then, oh, goodness, when you start thinking about what a dictionary actually is and how it works, that starts to melt your brain a bit. So, um, but anyway, there we are. It means to, to basically to take something somewhere else, to, to, to turn it into something different from what it is currently. Okay? Now, um, why might you not think that that's something that would be true of God from what we've seen so far? So, um, hands in the air. We'll get the mics to you. Um, was, was, that, was that a twitch? Was that a, was that a hand down here? Because if God's perfect in the first place, you can't change him to make him any better. Because I don't know what you guys had. That's, that's just the best answer. <laughs> if God is already perfect and he changes, then presumably he's not perfect anymore. So with God, if God is everything good, perfectly, to the uttermost, change is always going to be for the worse, if that's true. Yeah, I just, I just thought it, it's, it's reassuring for us that he doesn't change because of the previous answer. And also, I wondered if it was um, the things that he can't do is this sort of binary thing. And so if he yeah. changes, it, it becomes that he can do. Yeah. And that's no longer reassuring for us. Yes, indeed. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I mean, but, but yes, absolutely. The fact that God is constant, the fact that he won't change, means that you, know, you don't... So the ancient Greek and Roman gods, you never knew what mood they would be in. The ancient Greek and Roman gods and the ancient uh, pagan gods of, of the Near East, they had passions and lusts like we do. They had moods. They were subject to outbursts uh, of temper. They got, you know, uh, they got piqued. You could never quite know where you stood with them because they were like us. So you could never really trust them. It's like the kind of advice you're given if you have if you have a big dog, isn't it? No matter how much, no, no matter what your dog is like, no matter how kind your dog seems to be, never leave it alone with a toddler. Because you can never be absolutely certain. Okay? But God's not like that. He's not unpredictable. He doesn't change from moment to moment. That's hugely reassuring, isn't it? Okay, any other things? that um, We've got a, a hand down here. Let's, let's get to it before it, before it goes down. Uh, your dictionary definition requires time and space, yeah. and God is eternal. Great, thank you. So we've not really talked about God being eternal. But part of uh, what the Bible tells us about is that God um, created time. So in Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, we read, In the beginning, God... And people have tended um, to, to understand Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 as representing the beginning of time and space. Now that would fit with, as far as I understand it, with contemporary cosmology, with the idea that time and space go together. You can't have one without the other. So in fact, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4, uh, what reads to us is um, through him he created uh, the universe or, through the, or the world. So it's translated in slightly different ways in English. But the actual word in Greek is ion which means ages, because um, actually in the Greek language there's not a kind of s- distinction or separation between the ideas of, of, of time and, and space, they kind of come together, so you can talk about creating the ages as a way of talking about creating the world, uh, and that is what the writer of the Hebrews actually does when he talks about the sun creating, says he creates the ages, he creates time, or if you like he creates with time. So that time isn't something that actually belongs to God himself, but belongs to the creation. So change is something that belongs to the creation, but not to God. So we've talked about, haven't we, how God is just radically different from us. He doesn't have a body. He's not physical. In the same way, he is not bound by time. He creates time. Time is his invention. It doesn't rule over him in the same way that space doesn't rule over him. It doesn't limit him. And so for that reason, when we think about God's knowledge, you can talk about how past and the future are the same to him. The the future is no more unknown to him than the past or the present. Which is a really precious thing, isn't it, if you live in a totalitarian state. So one of the extraordinary... Sorry, that particular leap of logic is perhaps not the most obvious thing ever. But let me explain why why I said that. Um, If you've read George Orwell's 1984 the importance of history to the way you see the world becomes really clear. Because in 1984, the state rewrites history uh, according to uh, whatever the policy of the day is. The historical archives are actually continually shredded and rewritten in 1984. Because, the ministry says, whoever controls the past controls the present, and whoever controls the present controls the future. Now, um, you know, Winston Smith, the hero of the book, says, that doesn't sound right. Uh, And um, one of the sort of intellectuals behind all this says to him, but does the past exist? Is it real? No. So why can't we rewrite it? But you see, the past is real because it's real to God, and the future is real because it's real to God. And so actually having a God like this who underpins reality means that history matters, means that the things that have happened in your life matter, means that the things that uh, have happened in the world matter. And so there really can be judgment on the basis of things past. Uh, in that case, you know, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, they don't escape what they did. Those things can't just be airbrushed away, they, 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 they don't stop mattering because they exist in the past this this time that is gone and and will be never again because to God it's real do do you see? so that the whole of history is in his hands all at once he is so different from the creation Uh, and so maybe that's the other thing Just, just to sort of follow on from that about this is that because God is so distinct from the creation because he's not subject to the creation but Lord over it What is it exactly that you think is going to change him? Can you change him? Do you have power over God? Now that's a difficult question, isn't it? Because you want to say, no, of course I don't have power over God. But then you also want to say, well, maybe I do. Because I believe that he answers my prayers. I believe that prayer changes things. I believe that when I pray, God does stuff, and when I don't pray, sometimes He doesn't give me the answers I perhaps would have had if I'd prayed. We'll, we'll come back to that. So I want you to see that it's. But sometimes the way that we think about prayer can, can can mislead us into thinking that somehow we have power over our Maker, that somehow we are advising the ruler of the universe, and that you know, without our without our kind of eyes and ears on the ground, he wouldn't really know what to do. But God is much greater than that. And so when he answers prayers, it's a much greater thing, a much more awesome thing, than just taking really good advice from clever people like us. This isn't just the sort of thing, though, that you deduce from other portions uh, of Scripture. Will you turn with me to Psalm 102? And while you're turning, there's a, there's a graphic on the screen. You know, the, this is your prize for saying God's perfect. Um, this is the flow chart. Are you happy? Yes. Keep everything the same. Are you happy? No. Do you want to be happy? Yes. Change something. Okay. For God to be happier, he would need to change. But God cannot be happier. He cannot be more perfect. He cannot be better than he is. Okay, so, Psalm 102. He'll never shift from being that God, from being that loving father. Do you see how secure you are if you're a Christian? No matter what, you can say, my father does not change. The one who put the stars in the sky and made them move around does not himself move around and change and cast different shadows at different times. Always, only, perfectly good. And actually, like the writer of Psalm 102, that is, isn't it, the greatest comfort that we can have in the face of suffering. So, seven years ago, my younger brother uh, got married and... he was a much more successful person than me. He um, was a hedge fund manager. And uh, he took a year off work for his honeymoon. Oh, to be able to do that. Bought a yacht. Not, 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 not a little kind of, you know, kind of putter around the harbour kind of yacht, but an ocean-going yacht. And took his new wife and they just set off sailing around the world. And they got to the Caribbean and they thought, we like it here, we'll stay here for a while. Uh, and went to a beautiful island paradise. And uh, one night, they had an evening of scuba diving uh, it, on the island of Bonaire, which is basically the best place to get scuba diving in the world. At a meal of swordfish they'd caught the night before. And... Uh, and then at five o'clock his heart stopped beating. And he died. What do you do when something like Because I know many of you here will have had experiences like that. What do you do when that happens? When you get that phone call? You know, or when a member of your family turns up at your door 200 miles away from their home and you think, That's unusual or the police come round or the doctor says I think you might want to sit down before we have this conversation what do you do with that? I remember um, you know some of the conversations I had with people after that and the only thing I could you sort of start to feel like a crack record the only thing I could find to say to people was I don't know how but I know that there is a day coming when I will look my Creator in the eye and know that He has never done anything. I can know for sure that He is good and that that never changes. That is the comfort that the Christian has, that we know that the things that we cannot understand now, one day we will at least know that God is good. And that he has never, not even once, missed his footing. He has never stumbled. He has never failed to do good. Is there a greater comfort than that? I'm not sure there is. Now, it's important that we see that. Because one of the things that has become very popular in um, theological circles is to say that only the suffering God can help in that kind of situation. Only a God who suffers can really meet the needs of suffering people. And yet... We say God cannot, in his own nature, God cannot suffer. Now that's true because suffering implies change. The kind of suffering we're talking about implies change. It implies something that is inflicted on you from the outside. So when we say God cannot suffer, we don't mean God doesn't have emotions. Please don't misunderstand. We don't mean that God doesn't relate. But God doesn't experience in his own nature the sort of suffering that you and I experience that come from change that's inflicted on us. Unwilling. The fact that God doesn't change is part of the reason that the theologians have classically through the centuries, up until the 19th century, always said this. Um, uh, and indeed, um, there is another reason for this as well. And that is the, the language of blessedness about God. So um, Romans 1.25, the great uh, accusation against the idolaters is this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, and uh, in by the time you get to, to 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 the world of Jesus, the word blessed has become basically a synonym for who God is. He is the blessed one. Uh, and in the New Testament, it is only God who is supremely blessed who can be described in that kind of way. So that in Mark 14 at 61, and just turn there with me so you can see this. Because this is very striking. I think it's striking. In the midst of the trial of Jesus the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but he remained silent and made no answer again the high priest asked him are you the Christ the son of the blessed and Jesus said I am for the high priest the blessed is like the name of God And Jesus' reply, I am. So Moses says to God, well, who should I say has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, And um, by the time you get to to Jesus, that's interchangeable with this language. He is the blessed one. He is blessed. It's that kind of language of being that is there. So Jesus' reply is, is, I am he is the blessed one. Uh, and so the early church fathers, who, and this is important that you understand this, in the first five centuries of the church there are massive, massive theological debates about whether God can have anything to do with the creation, about whether the son of God is really uh, divine in his nature, uh, about whether um, you know, there's really an incarnation or whether Jesus is really just the first Christian. There are all those sorts of debates going on. The one thing that everyone, everyone agrees on in the first five centuries of the church, as far as I can tell, and, and Yaroslav Pelikan, who's done a, a, a massive study of the church fathers, says, they're all agreed on this, that God cannot suffer. Why? Because of this language of God being the blessed one, of God being perfected, in contrast with the cursedness and misery of creation. They see maintaining God as blessed as essential to maintaining their commitment to him being the transcendent one. The one who is over all and above all and not like us. Not part of the creation. And so because blessed is part of the definition. Remember everything's part of the definition with God. He cannot suffer. Because blessed is part of the definition of who he is. He does not need to change to become happier. Now, the accusation comes, is this just Greek philosophy? Uh, This is a 19th century idea. It is now in the academy. It's it's funny how these things happen. So um, people come up with an idea that's contrary to what everyone's always thought. uh, And no one listens to them or believes them. And then that belief becomes mainstream, academically. Uh, and then it goes out of fashion, academically. But just at the time when it's going out of fashion, academically, it becomes popularly, basically, orthodox. Okay, so you can watch this happening. If, you, if, you ha- if the Lord gives you another 50 years, you can watch, and the popular literature will change. Uh, but um, so in the 19th century, academics start saying, uh, you know, the reason the early fathers said that um, God doesn't suffer is because of Greek philosophy. It's just, they're just importing things from Plato and Aristotle. Now, um, that then gets into the mainstream, so there are lots of people who, you know, you say to them, God doesn't suffer, God doesn't change. The response comes, oh, that's just Greek. That's just Greek philosophy. Well, in the academy, it's now, it's now well known that that is not the reason the fathers said this. And one of the reasons for that is the work of the Latin church father, Tertullian. Now, Tertullian hated Greek philosophy uh, he famously said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What have the Greek philosophers got to do with the living God? He, he detested Greek philosophy. Uh, and yet he himself was massively committed to the idea that God does not change or suffer. And So he says it here. Deity has its origins neither in novelty nor in antiquity, but in its own true nature. Eternity has no time. It is itself all time. It acts. It cannot then suffer. That's in his books against Marcion. Where is Tertullian getting this from if it's not from Greek philosophy? Because he doesn't want it to be from Greek philosophy. Well, look at what he says. Where is the origin of deity in its own true nature? Does that ring any bells? It should. It's Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. It actually turns out that the early church fathers were not importing Greek categories... But we're dealing with the Old Testament categories uh, of uh, Exodus three and, uh, and this idea of blessedness. So the idea of God that the Church Fathers present us with is actually massively at odds with the idea of God that you find in uh, in Greek philosophy, like that of Plato and Aristotle. Because the God of the Bible is involved in His creation, loves His creation, interacts with His creation, is supremely blessed. The God of the Greeks can have nothing to do with the creation. Uh, so that um, Greek, people who want to put Greek thought together with Christian thought have to, have to invent a kind of intermediary deity they call the demiurge to have anything to do with the creation. Uh, he can't have anything to do with the creation. He's not involved with it. But nor is he supremely blessed. Because the word they have is, is apathes. He is apathetic. He has no feelings. He has no emotions. Whereas the God of the Bible is passionate, loves people so much that he will send his son. But they say he doesn't suffer, he doesn't change because he's independent of the creation. He is eternally blessed. Do you see that the, 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 the church, this is not Greek philosophy. They could, you know, that doesn't mean they're not wrong. I, don't, I think they're right, but it's not Greek philosophy. That is not the reason. It is not just Greek philosophy. But what about this other question then? Can only the suffering God help? Uh, That's a line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For that reason, we take it seriously. This is someone who's experienced real suffering. This is someone writing from a prison cell uh, where he's been imprisoned by the Third Reich at a time when he knows, perhaps not the scale of the Holocaust, but the fact that Jews in their hundreds of thousands, even their millions, are, are being sent up in smoke by a barbarous regime supported by his own people he says in that, kind of, in that kind of situation only the suffering God can help now it is true as we'll see in a moment that God does not stay above our sufferings does not stand aloof from them because of the Lord Jesus and if that's all Bonhoeffer meant then great but people have taken what Bonhoeffer said to say God must be able to suffer in his own nature that is the only way that he can help Roman Catholic theologian Tom Wineland has um, made a a major study of this and also published some sort of popular level books and uh, and articles that I think you'll find very helpful if you look at them you can find some stuff on um, First Things on the internet uh, which is a, um, a kind of Conservative Christian kind of journal that you might find interesting. Uh, But uh, Tom Wynandy uh, says this The compassion of God is seen not in his suffering in solidarity with humankind, but in his ability to alleviate the cause of human suffering, namely sin. Cast your mind back uh, to the psalm we read together just moments ago, Psalm 102. What is the hope for the person whose life is like smoke? whose bones are being eaten up by suffering and by persecution, whose life is being cut off in mid-course. What is his hope? He says, my hope is in the God who does not change. My hope is in the God who is standing in a firm enough place that he can help me, that he has power to answer my prayers, that he has power to change things. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed with a brain tumour and he had to have brain surgery. Now, we haven't discussed this, but I, I'm pretty confident of what his answer would be if I said, Would you be happier if your surgeon shared all your symptoms? Dizziness, confusion. Well, no. <laughs> no, I don't think you would be happier because, frankly, a dizzy, confused surgeon is not the kind of person you want tinkering with your brain. <clears throat> Why do you want a God who is lessened? Why do you want a God who can experience suffering the way that you do in his own nature? Does that make him more able to help or less? It's only the permanent, perfect God who can actually change things utterly reliably without a shadow of doubt. So Tom Winandy, um says this in one of his articles. I think this is uh, very helpful. I find it very helpful. Perhaps you will too. The absence of suffering allows God's love to be completely altruistic and beneficent. What human beings cry out for in their suffering is not a God who suffers, but a God who loves wholly and completely. Something a suffering God could not do. As Michael Dodds has perceptibly written, if it were my friend's compassionate suffering itself that brought me consolation, then I would be in the peculiar situation of reacting in quite the opposite way to my friend's suffering from the way that he reacts to mine. Where I would be taking some sort of joy in his suffering, while he reacts rather with sadness at my own. Why do you want God to suffer? Is this just Greek philosophy? No. Can only the suffering God help well, not straightforwardly, no. Thus, this will make God rather impersonal? Rather distant? If God can't change, if we can't change him, if we can't sort of produce effects in God, you know, in our relationships with each other, we, you know, we kind of, we, we inflict change on each other. And normally, we want that to be a positive thing. You know, I have a conversation with you. If you look me in the eye, if you smile at me, I kind of feel like, you know, the way that I'm speaking to you, the way that I'm relating to you is, is positive, and we, and we kind of mutually affirm each other. And so our relationship kind of produces change. And maybe I, I ask you for something, and, and you go and do it for me. And, and, and so, again, I know that there's that sort of, you know, relationship between creatures involves change. And so we think, because we think about, we want to think about God as just a bit bigger version of ourselves we think, well, for God to relate, it must be like that then. It must mean that we change him. But a change in relationship doesn't necessarily mean a change in your being or a change in yourself, does it? Take this example. I want you to stretch your imaginations as far as they will go to imagine that I'm the tallest man in the room. Now, it's easier with me standing on this ridiculously high stage, but... Um, Let me tell you that uh, I'm not the tallest man in the room, but imagine that I was. And then someone six foot one walks through the door. Am I still the tallest man in the room? I'm not six foot one, so no. I'm shorter than that. Am I still the tallest man in the room? No, I'm not. Have I changed? Has my height changed? By that person coming into the room? No. Or, imagine this, this is from Francis Turretin, who was um, a kind of great theologian who followed on from John Calvin in Geneva, uh, a generation later. Um, When the sun shines on a wax tablet and on a clay tablet, it has different effects. The wax tablet goes soft and runny, the clay tablet goes hard and cracks. Does that mean that the sun is doing something different? Does that mean there's a difference in the sun? No. The difference is in the tablets themselves. And so the same force produces different effects. So it is with the one perfect holy God as he relates to a sinner, unrepentant, in wrath. You see his relationship to them in one particular way and to the person shielded by the life and death of Jesus Christ, caught up in him, united to him by faith. God's relation to them is perfect and loving and delighting and rejoicing. Is the God who relates in those two different ways inherently necessarily any different or any less holy? No, it's just that the difference is in what he's relating to. You see the point? So a change in relation doesn't necessarily mean a change in, in essence or being for God. This is what is called an, in, in the trade. These are what are called Cambridge changes. That is, changes in the thing you're relating to that don't necessarily change you, but they change your relationship. <clears throat> so in that sense, God doesn't have to change for his relations to change and for him in that sense to be perfectly related to everything in the universe, every person in the universe, at every moment of time in the history of the universe. This, isn't, this doesn't mean that God doesn't relate to people. This doesn't mean that God's relations with people don't change. In fact, it means that God's relations can be absolutely perfect. Because God is perfectly relational. Think about John chapter 20 verse 31. Let's just turn there together. Sorry, I'm conscious that we may be going a little bit quickly. Um, I'm trying to cram a, 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 a bit into a slightly shorter time today. But don't worry. If you're lost, just come back now. Okay? We'll have, an, we'll have a thought amnesty. If your brain has been frying and you're, and you're struggling, let's all take a deep breath. We'll start again. We'll all pretend we're friends. Okay? <laughs> and uh, John 2031. Is the perfect God relational? Well, actually, he's perfectly relational, and therefore he cannot be lonely. So think about John chapter 20, verse 31. We'll start at verse 30. I always make this mistake. I say one verse, I mean two. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, those words can more show for us. John has written uh, this reasonably long book um, to tell you about Jesus. And he's put in some of the things that Jesus did. He says, actually, if I wrote them all down, you, know, you wouldn't read them all. And actually, the, the book would be too big. But I've selected the ones I'm going to write down for you so that they will teach you something very specific so that you will believe something very specific that Jesus is the Christ the son of God you say okay we know that we're Christians we know that Jesus is the son of God but if you read through John's gospel asking yourself the question why does it matter that Jesus is the son why do I need to know that Jesus is the son I get that I need to know that he's the Christ I even get that I need to know that he is divine but John doesn't say I want you to know that he's God he says I want you to know that he's the son of God and as you read through the gospel you realise that this is actually the thing that Jesus is stressing the whole time I'm the son of the father when he heals someone on the sabbath and the Jews get angry and say this is a bad thing you've broken the sabbath Jesus says, the Father is always working and so the Son is always working too. In other words, the Sabbath doesn't apply to me. Not because I am the Father, but because I am the Son of the Father. Jesus keeps on using his miracles to reveal his relationship to his Father, to reveal that he is the Son and that the Father is Father so that actually, as you, get, as you work your way through John's Gospel, you realise there is something about the relationship between the Father and the Son that is vital for me to know, that is vital for me to understand. It's not just enough for me to think that Son of God means Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of the Father. That is the truth that Jesus wants to reveal as you go through John's Gospel. So if you're doing un- Uncover, you know, that's a big thing you're going to need to be thinking about as you go through why is it so important that Jesus is the Son? How is it that Jesus can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? John 10. Well, I don't have time to explain that to you now, but <laughs> it's one of those, it's, it's great, isn't it? I'll set up the question and then not completely answer it. But I'll give you a bit of the answer. And a bit of the answer is that The relationship between Father and Son reveals something not just about the Son, but about the Father. That He is Father. And that astonishingly, by relating to Jesus, by being joined together with Jesus by faith, you come to relate to God as Father too. So that when Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he say? He says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. So that Paul can say, when the Spirit's at work in you, in Romans 8, when the Spirit is at work in you, what's the, what, what does that look like? We cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit draws us to the Father through the Son so that we too, Come into that relationship of sonship that has been there eternally between the Father and the Son. Does that not blow your mind? But the Son reveals that God is really Father, that at His heart, God is relational. That relationship is, at, is part of the definition. That the Father has always had a Son. And the way that uh, the ancients used to illustrate this was to say, The relationship between the Father and the Son is like the relationship between a spring and a river. Or like the relationship between light and radiance. You see, we really struggle. If we try and come up with illustrations for the Trinity, you cannot escape. If you try to come up with an illustration of the Trinity, come and tell me afterwards, but as far as I'm aware, no one has ever come up with an illustration of the Trinity that doesn't instantly lead you into heresy. uh, Because you're trying to talk about things that are beyond the creation in terms of the creation. It's just incredibly difficult. This is as close as anyone's ever got to a decent Trinitarian illustration, but of course it's not Trinitarian belief. But the point is a very simple one, that father and son are mutually dependent terms, mutually dependent concepts. You cannot be a father unless you have offspring. In the same way, you cannot... You, It cannot be said to be the source of a river if there is not a river. You cannot have something that say, that is a light, if there is not radiance coming off from it, if light doesn't radiate from it. So that if Jesus is really son, then the father is really father. And so there is real relationship at the heart of God for eternity. Relationship isn't something that starts with the creation. Now, what does that mean? It means that God cannot be lonely God didn't make you because he was on his own and felt a bit sad. He didn't make you because, you know, he didn't have anyone to play Monopoly with on a Friday evening. God was already perfectly relational. So, okay, it means God didn't create you out of need, but it also means that love is natural to God. That love is actually part of who he is so that John can actually say God is love. So to live in relationship with God is to be people who are filled with love and so who love others as well. Love is fundamental to the Christian understanding of who God is. He can never be lonely. And he can never die. I think about Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek before the time of Jesus. Jesus. And when they translated um, Exodus three fourteen, they translated using uh, a Greek participle for the verb to be, and um, uh, which uh, is "own." <laughs> okay. Now, if you turn to Revelation chapter one and verse eight, this is what is quoted. He is quoting. Exodus 3.14 in that Greek translation. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, that's the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet, says the Lord God, who is, and that is basically the translation for I am who I am in Exodus 3.14 in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Who is, and who was, and who is to come. I exist throughout all of time Being is part of the definition of who I am. I cannot die. So that, verse 18, fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. God cannot die. We saw it, didn't we, in 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6. God is immortal, He cannot die. And so, Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, is extraordinary. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. God cannot die. And yet in Jesus, he did die. Jesus can say, I'm never going to die again. I'm alive forevermore. And I can give you life forevermore. I've got the keys to death. Do you remember the first time your friend turned up at your house and said, I've got the keys to my dad's car? I remember I won't name the person in case they're here but they said yeah let's go out for a spin and we did and stopped to buy some petrol I was so excited for you know oh wow it's just so grown up I said I'll do the filling I left the filler cap on top of the car didn't I <laughs> went down well got the keys to the car Jesus said I've got the keys to death and Hades I'm never going to die again and guess what Are you? You're coming on a journey with me that you're not going to believe. I am the living one. I was dead. In Jesus, and this is the most profound mystery in the history of the universe, in Jesus, God died. Not in his divine nature, but in his human nature. What I want to suggest to you is you scribble those questions down and you scribble down Hebrews 2, 9, 17. We don't have time to look at it. But basically, in Hebrews 2, what we see is um, the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, there was something God couldn't do. He couldn't die. So he took on human nature just so that he could die. He found a way to bleed. He found a way to die so that he could die for you. What profound mystery is that? That God took something he couldn't do and did it. And so the living one died. The impassable suffered. The one who cannot suffer, suffered. So Pope Leo the Great. We'll leave several of Alexandria for now. But on your handout you have uh, this quote from Leo. Pope Leo the Great, known as the Great for very good reason. He managed to untie a knot that had kept Christians tangled up for four centuries on how the relation how the natures the human and divine natures in the son related to each other he said stop thinking about how they relate to each other think about how they relate to him as a person when you meet the man Jesus you meet the person of the son of God in his human nature he is the same person but he is really truly fully a man and if you were here two years ago and you heard Bruce Ware you know all about this but in his divine nature he's unchanged he's unchanging he can't suffer he can't die But the person really dies. Now, Leo was called the great for all kinds of other reasons. He actually, when Attila the Hun was going to sack Rome, Leo came out uh, of Rome and met him outside the gates and said, Attila, would you mind going home? And Attila the Hun went home. Now, Leo may have taken some gold with him, um, but he was an extraordinary guy. This is what he said about Jesus. While the distinctiveness of both natures was preserved and both met in one person... The inviolable, divine, and impassible was united to the passable so that the same mediator might from the one element be capable of dying and also from the other incapable. As God, he can't die, but as man, he can. So that the Lord of the universe allowed his infinite majesty to be overshadowed and took upon him the form of a servant. The impassible God did not disdain to be passable man and the immortal to be subject to the laws of death. And so, in his suffering, the God who is never alone was in Jesus alone, forsaken for you. for me. Wesley was right, wasn't he? His mystery for the immortal dies. The angels long to look into what this means, and they cannot. You have received, if you are a Christian, a gift that the greatest intelligences in the universe cannot fathom. A God who, when it counts, has found a way to suffer so that you don't have to, not in the way that you would otherwise. You don't have to suffer his wrath, he suffered that for you. But who is also able to secure for you everything perfectly because he doesn't change and he doesn't suffer. So that Psalm one hundred and two can still be true. So that the second half of Revelation one eighteen can still be true. I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm never going to change don't need to be afraid. So Henry Light captures the comfort of that well, don't you think? Reflecting on his own death, swift to its close, ebbs out, life's little day, earth's joys grow dim, glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with. Let's pray. Father God, we could not, we could not have dreamt up a scheme as wonderful as that which you have put in place to rescue us in finding a way that your son could come and die for us. But nor could we ask for a greater God than the God who does not change, the God who does not Altar like the shifting shadows, but who is always able to help those who call out to him, those who come to him. Father, we thank you that though our gracious thoughts of you are far too small, that you are worthy of all our praise and all our wonder. And Father, as in this week, the church around the world remembers this deepest mystery, that the living one died. Grant us a fresh delight and wonder at that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.